0: Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus and chapter 25, Exodus and chapter 25, once you get there, jump down to verse 10. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be on page 116, okay, 116. Uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus. We are about at the uh, winding down of uh, the book of Exodus, and this long journey that we've taken together that i hope have been fruitful for you. Um what we looked at last week was Moses ascending up the mountain. God invited him up, Sinai, to meet with him. And um, that started, 24-12, a section that goes all the way through the end of chapter 31, okay? So it's God speaking to Moses, Moses does not talk at all, all the way through chapter 31. And that's what we saw the ascent last week. And uh, we're going to take kind of a a big view of 25:31 this week and next week, and I'll walk us through that. So we're going to read two places in this section together. Um, and the first one is 25, 10 through 22. Okay, so let's go ahead and, uh, and read this together. Remember, God is giving Moses instructions on Sinai for the tabernacle. 25 starting in verse 10. God's Word says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half, its breadth... And a cubit and a half its height You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony... That I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. And cherubim should spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to the other. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay, now go to chapter 29, verses 38 through 46 is where we'll read. If you're in a scripture journey, this is on Scripture Journal. This is on page 141. Okay. Chapter 29, verses 38 through 46. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, you shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you (coughs) to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting with an altar, Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Now, these next two verses underline, circle, highlight, make, make note of these verses, okay? I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Amen. It's God's Word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. One cannot read much of the Bible without coming to the conclusion that God does a lot of things that are surprising. Do you agree with that? He does things that we would not have done. He does things that perplex us. He does things that are beyond what we can imagine or concoct. In Exodus, he saves a bunch of slaves who have nothing to offer him. He he caused the very things he created to rise up and vanquish his foe in Pharaoh when really he could have just made his heart stop beating in an instant, right? He splits the Red Sea to allow his redeemed to walk across its dry land and then only to bring the waters back together to swallow their pursuers. He himself then leads this people by cloud and fire, even while they grumble against him and doubt his care, even going so far as to wishing that they could return to bondage that God had freed them from only a few weeks earlier. Now we're in another part of Exodus that only furthers the surprising things that God does. Here, we have an extensive section showing God's desire to dwell among these people who have not a single thing to commend themselves to him. And he wants them to build for him a dwelling to be placed in the center of their camp, wherever this happens to be, for them to see as a continual reminder of who their champion and their God is, for them to fellowship with him and to offer sacrifices to him and to worship corporately with him and to know that the God of all things is among them because he loves them even as they don't deserve such love. Surprising, right? And you would think, wouldn't you? That if a house was to be built for the creator God, there is no one higher after all, that it would be a swanky, enormous, elaborate, palatial mansion, right? Don't you think? For the God of all things? Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, the Israelites grew up in Egypt seeing a whole host of these elaborate and expensive temples for all these Egyptian gods who aren't really gods. Surely God would want something even better than that. Isn't that what makes make sense? It's perplexing that he would want to dwell with sinful man to begin with. But surely if he was going to do it, he would want a grandoise palace. After all, isn't that what other so-called gods have? Isn't that what other rulers have? Isn't that what the ultra-wealthy do too, is build these swanky places? And who is and who's wealthier than the God who owns all things? I think of two of the most expensive residences in the world: Buckingham Palace. You guys know Buckingham Palace is owned by the British royal family. You know it has 775 rooms and 78 bathrooms. In that that ratio seems off. (laughs) 775 rooms, 78 bathrooms, 92 state rooms uh, or 92 offices, 19 state rooms, 828,000 square feet. And the garden alone is 40 acres. If it's sold right now, it'd fetch close to $3 billion. That makes sense. Or what about the Antilla in Mumbai, India, which you might have never heard of before? It's the house of a billionaire named Mukesh Abini, and it costs $1 billion to build. It's 27 stories high, 400,000 square feet. It has six floors that are purely devoted to car storage. A service station for the cars, a temple, a 50-seat movie theater, nine elevators, a health spa, three helipads. Who needs that? A salon, a ballroom, a yoga studio, an ice cream room, and multiple cinemas, and it requires a staff of 600 people. It also sits only eight miles from the slums of Mumbai, where millions of people live in shanties and subsist on less than $2 a day. Oh, and an orphanage was torn down so it could be built on that particular plot of land. But see, both of those residences make sense to us, right? Even as ridiculous and unnecessary as they are, monarchs and billionaires have swanky mansions. It just, that makes sense. That's our world. That's what monarchs and billionaires do. And let's be honest, if we were in their position, we'd be tempted to do the same things. So surely God dwelling with his people will require an ancient form of these modern day palaces fit for the most glorious king there ever was and ever will be, right? Well, actually, while the instructions on the building of God's dwelling place among the people, of the tabernacle, take up 13 of the final 16 chapters of Exodus, it is, in fact, a tent. Yes, <laughs> and it's in the, a tent, in the midst of tents. This doesn't mean it's not special. Of course, it is. Doesn't mean it isn't beautiful. Beautiful. Of course, it is. This doesn't mean it doesn't have intricacies. Of course, it does. But what makes this relatively modest dwelling special is not necessarily the furniture or the design or its modest size. What makes it special is who occupies it, yes? And while we won't look at all, this, all these specifications, we'll be served to spend this week and next week considering some aspects and the big picture elements of these chapters. So today, let's do a 30,000-foot view, and I want us to just consider two significant things in these chapters. Two two significant big ideas. This isn't to say there are only two, but we'd be well served to look at this this week and next week. So first for today, point number one, let's consider the tabernacle and God's unfolding plan. The tabernacle and God's unfolding plan. That'll be our point number one. Now last week I told you that we were going to look at chapters 25 through 31. And so you should have read them over the course of the last seven days. And if you did that, you might have struggled a little bit to get through some of the more detailed parts. Like it's no secret that this is the part of Exodus where typically people's eyes glaze over a little bit. Okay? Because you have... You think about Exodus, you have action after action after, right, plagues and and the Red Sea and Sinai with the cloud and the fire and the smoke and them coming up to the mountain and being invited up and down, and then you come to this grinding halls for instructions about arcs and lampstands and curtains and incense and more. And then you have the golden calf incident. And the fallout of that in 32 through 34, and then you know what you have after that? More chapters of instructions on the tabernacle. But truly, these chapters are incredibly important in the unfolding of God's purposes for the world and for salvation history. That God is giving instructions on how to build a dwelling for him is huge, and its significance can hardly be overstated. God coming and dwelling with man. Is that not what these chapters are talking about? I mean, you just think about that. When was the last time in the Bible God dwelt with man? Genesis 3. God has talked with man, right? He's called man to activities. He's rescued man. He's entered covenants with man. But he has not dwelt with man. Since Eden, But don't forget that the whole point of the world, the whole point of redemption history is to restore the created design of God dwelling with man. And we see that the point of Exodus is that very same thing. That's why I told you to circle, highlight, underline 29, 45, and 46. Does it not explicitly say that this is the whole point of the whole thing? <coughs> I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that i am the lord their god who brought them out of the land of egypt what this is why that i might dwell among them it's explicitly stated by the lord that he rescued them from egypt so that he could dwell with them that's the point of it all and it's the point of taking them to the promised land right we've said that it's not about real estate it's about being in a place where god can dwell with his people And we see similar things. Look at a couple instances. If you have your Bibles or Scripture journal, look at 25.8. Specifically the end of that verse. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary, what? That I might dwell in their midst. And then still in 25, jump down to verse 21 and 22. And you shall put a, we read this. You shall put a mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you There I will meet with you. And then he restates it again in 29, 42, and 43, and 36, and 30, 36. He just keeps saying, that I might dwell with you, that I might meet with you. God intends to restore, albeit temporary here, what was lost in Eden. And in fact, what you see in this narrative is recapitulations of Eden and the creation narrative. For our purposes, we can't look at them all, but I want you to consider a couple similarities, okay? Think about this. For one, the instructions of the tabernacle seem to mirror the days of creation. And the tabernacle itself is a microcosm of the created universe and of the heavenly throne room meeting earth. Think about the days of creation in chapter 25. You have the ark and the golden lampstand, and they're all covered in gold and giving light, and it's like day one of creation when the Lord created light and darkness. Then you have the curtains and the cherubim on the ark and on the curtains, which represent the heavens and the firmaments like day two of creation. Then you have the bronze altar and the outer court, which is like day three in God's creation of dry land. Then we we are taken back. If you read through 25 and 31, you'll notice that you're taken in and out of the holiest places. And we're taken back in to the instructions of the lampstand and the oil for the lampstand, which is like day four of creation when God created the sun and the stars. Then you have the consecration of priests, right? And that corresponds to Adam and Eve being created and giving a task as sort of co-regents and Uh, co-heirs, cultivators of Eden as the garden temple, like on day six. And then in chapter 31, it's interesting, you have a restatement of the Sabbath and rest, which, haven't we already covered that several times? But it's restated because this corresponds to day seven. But the tabernacle is also like a mini version of the created world. G.K. Beale says the three parts of Israel's temple represented the three parts of the cosmos. The outer court symboled the visible earth, of land and sea, the place where humans live. The holy place primarily represented the visible heavens, though there was also garden symbolism, like the tree, the menorah. The holy of holies stood for the invisible heavenly dimension of the cosmos where God dwelt. But further, we see some of the same elements regarding the tabernacle as we did in Eden. You'll find, I hope, at the end of your rows, so beyond the end of this rose and these rows, there's a handout for you to take and it's a chart with many of the these similarities listed okay and some resources that you could check out if if this is the kind of topic you want to dive deeper in okay but for our purposes we have time to go through all those but I just want to point out a few big ones just to show you this after the fall in Genesis 3 you might remember when God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden that access was denied from the east. Do you remember that was being mentioned? It was denied from the, it specifically stated there, access is denied from the east. This is where the gate was. This was to be guarded by two cherubim. You remember that as well, and a flaming sword. In the instructions of the tabernacle, we see the first mention of cherubim since that passage in Genesis. And they are portrayed on the curtains and on the ark of the holiest place where God's presence will dwell. And the tabernacle, they even mention here, is set up wherever they are encamped to where the entrance is at the east. And as the people and the priests make their way into the, the, the tabernacle, they're moving west towards the altar and towards the holy place, closer to God's presence. So they are, in a sense, being readmitted to the place of God's presence because of his grace and mercy. They are banned from the east. They were banned from the east. Now they make their way through east and go westward on the invitation of the Lord who makes a way for them to return. You also have lampstand in chapter 25, which has elements to make it like it's a tree, with branches resembling almond blossoms. Where else have we seen a tree in the midst of God's dwelling? Eden. And where will we see it again in Revelation 22? in the new Jerusalem. Of course, Exodus is not meant to be the end of the story. God is moving us through his unfolding plan, and that plan is to restore fellowship with sinful man, to readmit them into his presence, to fellowship with him, to regain what was lost in Eden. Exodus is an important step in this unfolding plan as it shows us with vivid clarity that God means to be with people, But they need to be redeemed. And they can only come so close. Because Exodus is not meant to be final, it's meant to be a shadow of what is to come. You know, John knew this when he wrote the fourth gospel. He knew that God's unfolding plan did not reach its climax in the tabernacle, or the first temple, or the second temple. But it would be fulfilled only through the Creator God coming down to dwell with man in a way that no one would have guessed or even thought possible. It's no coincidence, is it? That the fourth gospel starts with the same words as Genesis 1:1, in the beginning. But it diverges from there: was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made. Through him and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light, it shines in the darkness like a lampstand in the holy place in the beginning, because Jesus is coming to be to recreate. And when John is writing and he's going to describe Christ coming to earth, he knew just the word to use to describe it the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's no coincidence. And it's no coincidence that when John the Baptist in that same chapter sees Jesus coming, he uses this language of Passover, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's no coincidence that in the next chapter, Jesus refers to himself as the true temple that will be destroyed and raised up. And it's no coincidence that when Jesus was being executed, like a lamb upon the altar, that Matthew tells us, the veil of the curtain that separated man from the presence of God in the tabernacle and temple, what happened to it? Torn asunder. And it's no coincidence that when Mary, do you remember this, after the resurrection, Mary looks into the tomb. And where Jesus' body was laid were two angels. One was where his head was, and one was where his feet were like they were cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant between where the blood would be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. And we could go on and on. Friends, my point here is not to give you a bunch of sweet Bible knowledge, knowledge, but for you to see what God's promises in the world is, and his purpose for you, and to be utterly astonished at what he's doing. My goal is not for you to hear all this and think that it's simply neat info. My purpose is for you to be flabbergasted with our God and the coherence of his word and his purposes in the world, which will not fail. And be amazed that he is inviting you to be part of his story and what he's doing in the world. Do you realize that? Because of Jesus, you're being invited into the holiest place with unfettered access to fellowship with God and his people. Two, says Hebrews 10, draw near the holy place with confidence through the blood of Jesus, a way that he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. You can draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance having your heart sprinkled clean. You have been pursued and shown your need and invited in and you are being pointed to a future hope that surpasses all hope. These truths should make you amazed by the astonishing plan of God, how all of scripture fits together to show you this incredible plan. It should utterly alter the way you live. It should fill you with joy to know you're loved like this, and it should cause you to be willing to give all for so great a God and King to hold loosely on the things of earth because they're temporary and unable to bring ultimate fulfillment, to live for other people and put your own desires on the shelf, and to do anything to spread the good news of this gospel to a community and world in darkness. When you read Exodus 25 through 31 and 35 through 40, you may be prone to see intricate details about a place that you may be tempted to regard as simply another instance of the Old Testament's desire to be precise and stuffy. Or just another chunk that can be skipped over as irrelevant to the Christian because this is old covenant stuff. What do all these details have to do with me? But this would be a mistake. You know, uh, you know, in the Art Institute of Chicago, there's on display this truly remarkable painting by, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, George S. Surratt called, and you've seen this, if you go Google this, you'll, you'll see, oh yeah, that's right, Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte. This is the famous painting. If you stand, if you were to go to this painting, you stood real close to it, okay, you essentially see what looked like a couple million of dots. That's what it would look like if you got real close. Surratt used a technique that he pioneered. Like it would, if me and you were painting a picture, we'd, we'd be tempted to use these big brush strokes, right? He used this thing called pointillism where he would just make tiny brush strokes and small dots with the tip of his brush. And when you stand real close, that's all it looks like. Uh, it doesn't look very coherent. And even though the colors he used are very beautiful, it really just looks like a bunch of dots. But then you step back and you step back And you step back, and what becomes clear is a beautiful and cohesive portrait. The small, intricate dots join together to form a coherent whole. And on the surface, these instructions on the tabernacle, they seem like intricate details that have nothing to do with us. But that's only if you don't take a step back and back and back and see the big picture of which the tabernacle is pointing us. These chapters are saying something utterly profound. They're shouting that God means to dwell with his people out of sheer grace and love. It is pointing forward to an even greater tabernacling and even more beautiful picture in the person of work of Christ and even what it points to in the new heavens and the new earth, which is the ultimate fulfillment and restoration of Eden and God's purposes therein. But they can only be ushered in by this glorious king, messiah, mediator, high priest, Jesus Christ. But doesn't this make, you amazed at, does this make you amazed at the Bible's cohesion? Does it? This is no mere book, friends. It's a gift from God to show us his unfolding plan and be amazed at how he has worked in history. Which is why, did you notice, God's word holds a central place in the tabernacle. Let's make this our second point, okay? Point number two, the tabernacle and the centrality of God's word the tabernacle, and the centrality of God's word. You'll notice that the first objects, if you read 25, 31, or just do a scan of it, the first objects that are described in this section are the Ark of the Covenant, the table of bread of the presence, and the lampstand. This is because they're the most sacred objects and represent aspects of God's character. Okay, But note also that the only thing in the holiest place, so you have these everything gets more precious and intricate as you move through the courtyard, okay? So you have a courtyard, and you have a holy place. And then you have the holiest place, all right? And there's only one thing in the holiest of places. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And according to 2516, it only contains the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, and eventually the whole law. That's all that's in it. This is chest, and that's all that's in it. (laughs) It's especially important because... This ark, because it had the mercy seat, which symbolized the place of God's presence when the blood would be sprinkled there once a year on the day of atonement. And it was the place where heaven met earth. It was like the portable Sinai that we saw last week, where the throne room of God in the heavenly places met the footstool of God on earth and in the midst of Israel. So special was it, this ark, that God instructed the people to build it with rings. Did you notice that? And poles so it could be carried because if they touched it, what would happen? Everybody knows that that sad story about the fella who was just he was just trying to keep it from falling, right? Remember that? What happened to him? He's dead, right? Just dead. It's not funny. Okay. He just died because that's how holy the Ark of the Covenant is. You laughed. At least somebody laughed with me. I'm not the only morbid one, right? But again, we need to emphasize what it contained, this ark, okay? of all things. That could have been inside the sacred chest. What does it have inside of it? The word of the Lord. The very words he himself spoke to Israel, spoke verbally to Israel in chapter 20. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis 1-1, by the way? He speaks the word to them, spoke the word of the book of the covenant to Moses Further, if you flip to, do it, thirty-one, chapter 31, look at the very last verse of this section before the golden calf incident. What does this very last verse say in chapter 31, verse 18? This is incredible. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, what? Can you believe this? <laughs> Written with the finger of God. The very words of God were spoken and written by his finger and they were to be in in the only piece of furniture in the holiest place on earth which joined heaven with earth for the first time since Eden and of which no man could touch directly lest he die. How important is the word of God? We see scripture itself Testify to the weight that God gives to his word. He spoke it, he wrote it with his finger. Paul says it was all scripture from Genesis 1 1 to Revelation 22. breathed out by God, and Jesus is identified as the Word made flesh. How important is the word of God? God and His Word cannot be separated, and we're given no such option. This is say we could worship we should worship the Bible itself. But God so identifies with his word that it is in the holiest place on the planet at the time in the first piece of furniture that he instructs about in this section on building the place that he intends to dwell with man. God and his word are inextricably joined together and his word is the means by which we can know him and his unfolding plan more. Scholar Nahum Sarna said, of this, this written reminder of God's revealed word constituted the sign of his presence and his indwelling in the midst of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, therefore, embodied one of the fundamental ideas of the religion that it is only through his word that true knowledge of God, the understanding of his essential nature, can be apprehended or at least pursued. The word occupies a central place in the tabernacle. Yes? What's, what's a more important place in the tabernacle than this? There's not one. That should tell us something profound and important for our own church and lives. God identifies with his word. He gave it to us as a gift to know him more and to behold his unfolding plan and to grow in him and to inform how to live in light of his grace so it occupies a central place in the tabernacle it should should it thus occupy a central place in the church and the lives of a christian you know in the years that preceded the reformation something fascinating happened regarding church architecture there was a shift in church architecture a couple hundred years before the reformation What was placed in the front middle of the churches were the elements of the mass. And what they did was they took the pulpit and they moved it off to the side. And this is communicating something to the people. It was communicating that the mass was central, not the preached word. Do you see? Because back then, I mean, church architecture spoke to where you should be looking and, and what the point of your gatherings were. Well, during the Reformation and following the Reformation, the Reformers changed church architecture to communicate something about their theology of the Word. They moved the pulpit sometimes to the middle of the room, like in the very center of the room or like most churches have today, in the middle front, and it was elevated even more than I am right now. Why? Because it was communicating that the Word was central and that reading and preaching of it was the most important element of worship and it was elevated so the people not only could hear but to symbolize their sitting under the word martin luther even went so far as to call the church the creature of the word saying the church was born by the word of promise through faith and by the same word is nourished and preserved this is to say it is the promise of god that make the church and not the church that makes the promise of god For the word of God is incomparably superior to the church. Being a creature has nothing to decree, ordain, or make, but only to be decreed, ordained, and made. Friends, the Bible, the word of God, the scriptures, whatever you want to call it, they must occupy a central place in the church and the lives of those who follow Christ. Do you believe that? They're clearly important to God. Am I out to lunch when I say that? Clearly they're important to God. They're his chosen means for us to learn him and grow in him. Shouldn't we love them and put them at the center of all we do? You know, we talked a few weeks ago of how our hearts are dummies. You remember that? And how unreliable guides they are. And yet, they very often inform how we live. Right? Right? And how we even do church more than the Word of God does. We talk, and we talk often, of what we like and what we desire and what we wish, but scarcely of what the Bible commands us to be. And in such cases, who's the Lord of the church and of our lives, truly? Why do we, in our worship services here, begin with the reading of Scripture? Why is the longest part of the service an exposition of the Word? It's not because I'm long-winded, though I am that, okay? It's because the Word is what calls us to worship, and it is central to what we do as a church because we know you will be shaped by something. Yes? You will be shaped by something. And what you should be shaped by is the infallible, inerrant, breathed-out Word of God if the word was important enough to be in the central place of the tabernacle, it's good enough to be the controlling and central factor of First Baptist Church. Don't you think? Okay, but let me ask this. Is it? Is it central in your thoughts of what should inform the church and what it should be and do? Not just in verbal affirmation, but functionally. Is it central in your life personally? Do you make it a priority? Do you spend time in it every day? Do you see it like food and water, non-negotiable for your day? Not because you want to check off some list, say, I got through the Bible today, but because in it you will find the truths about your Savior and King. (laughs) And it will grow you in knowledge of him and thus affections for his will and glory. In his commentary on Exodus, Alec Moitier talks about how through these instructions, right, God is giving these instructions for them to build this tabernacle. But it's up to the people, right, to follow the instructions, to actually build the temple. He's saying God was offering them a means of grace, okay, a means of grace for the people to get close to God. He said, the Lord was willing and ready to dwell with the people, but it was for them to decide if they wanted him to do so. If they did want him, then they had to fulfill the conditions he laid down, right, to build these things. In other words, they had had the means that God had given them to get him and fellowship with him, but it was up to them on whether or not they wanted to do it. And the same is true for us. You realize that? What has God given us Public and corporate worship and Christian fellowship and accountability and the ministry of the word through the preaching and the teaching and the Lord's table and even private means like all of you have a Bible in your house and you can pray. Remember that access that we talked about? Always open for you, Christian, to enter the throne room of God. So if we don't grow in the Lord, why is that? He's given us the means, but if we don't use them, we're the ones, right? We're the ones failing to take hold of these incredible means of grace from him. You know, LifeWay Research, I don't know if you saw this, but they published findings of a survey a few weeks ago that was alarming but not surprising, okay? It found that among evangelicals by belief, okay, I want you to think about that phrase for a second, 66% say they use Facebook at least once a day. Does that surprise any of you? <laughs> Yeah, If you're like me, you're like, that seems low. But 49% said they used it several times a day. Okay, They got on Facebook several times a day. 39% watch a YouTube video at least once a day. 22% use Instagram daily. And 16% use Twitter. Okay, so that in itself is not a problem, right? <laughs> I mean, just opening Facebook, that's not, there's no sin in that. The problem <laughs> is that of evangelicals by belief say they read their Bible every day. And when they say evangelical by belief, they mean people who affirm doctrinally that the Bible is the highest authority. And yet, only a third of them read the Bible daily, while nearly three-quarters of them use Facebook daily, and half of them use it multiple times a day. Again, those things are not inherently bad. But when we find time to get on them and not in reading the very word of God, that's a problem. Yes? (laughs) Because you know, as well as I do, that we will find time for things we want. Do you agree with that? (laughs) We find time for hobbies and recreation and vacation and extracurricular activities for us and for our kids but what about the Word? Again, not even those things are inherently bad. (laughs) But if those things edge out our devotion to Christ and our Bible intake and our gathering with the saints, which do you think needs adjusted? Moitier, who I mentioned a moment ago, I'll talk again about him in a second. When he's talking about God providing means of grace for the people to get close to him, he said this too. He said, we can, however, choose to live at a distance neglecting those things which bring God near to us and us to him. Friend, are you tapping into those means of grace to get more of God, or are you living at a distance? Clearly, I think, you want more of him because your continual, you're here right now, <laughs> we're going to say. yeah, like Your continual presence here says that much. And we said over and over again, That the word will be what informs what we do as a church, and you've heard that, and that has resonated with you, and you keep coming because I think you want that too, right? But do you also treasure the word to an extent that you desire to be in it every day? And do we believe that the word should have a central place in the church as an informer of all things, not only in our mind and with our lips, but with our actions too, even when it gets hard? Even when other routes seem quicker, more comfortable, or more in sync with our feelings. I haven't put this in my notes, but I'll just be honest with you. For for a living, right? I get to study the Word, yes? But outside of studying Scripture to deliver to you, sometimes I struggle to get in the Word every day. Sometimes I struggle, I I, I get paid to do this. (laughs) I struggle to do this. So I'm not saying, "Ah." I'm saying me too. Like This this is the word of, this is the very word of God that I'm delivering to you and telling you it should be your treasure and I struggle to. But it takes intentionality, doesn't it? On your part and on my part. The word has to be central. It is at the tabernacle and it should be in the church and in our lives. Let me transition a little bit. I just want you to imagine, I was thinking about this this week, can you imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite during this time? Have you ever thought about that? Like right here in 25 through 31, like your mediator Moses, just the idea that this guy that God chose to lead you and represent you is up on the mountain meeting with the God of all things. All right? And getting instructions on how to make possible God dwelling among you. And the idea that not too long ago, you were in slavery. You were under this heavy burden. You were mistreated and abused. And there was, it didn't seem like there was any hope to ever live in any other condition than in bondage. But then, God came and he did mighty things and made the most powerful man in the world look like a punk and by his power he led you out of bondage he made a way for your sins to be atoned for and into relationship with him and he actually wants to be in your midst can you imagine what that'd be like how you heard growing up the story of your first parents adam and eve being in in god's midst and then sinning and being barred from his presence how your forefather Abraham was sought by God and God made a promise with him that his ancestors would inherit a land, but how that seemed so impossible when you were in Egypt. <clears throat> but praise God, he provided his, a way, he proved his promises are true and they actually wanted, wanted to be with you. Something he hadn't done since Eden. I mean, wouldn't that do something to your mind and soul and heart, you think? Do you think? Tim Keller tells a story of when he was a seminary student, and he was at R.C. Sproul's house with some other students. It's just funny to me picturing like a young Tim Keller sitting Indian style in the living room of R.C. Sproul's house. But there was Old Testament scholar Alec Moitier, who I've I've been mentioning throughout this series because his commentary on Exodus is incredible. But he was visiting with them, okay? And as they were chatting, Sproul said to Moitier, Tell us about the connection between the Old and New Testaments, okay? And this is what Moitier said. He said, think about it. Think of what an an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage. But I took shelter behind the blood of the Lamb, and our mediator led us out, and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community, and he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness, and he is present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive home. Then Moitier added, that's exactly what a Christian says. <laughs> Almost word for word. Then Keller concludes like this, my young self was thunderstruck. i held the vague, unexamined impression that in the Old Testament, People were saved through obeying a host of detailed laws, but that today we're freely forgiven and accepted by faith. This little thought experiment showed me in a stroke not only that the Israelites had been saved by grace and that God's salvation had been by costly atonement and grace all along, but also that the pursuit of holiness, pilgrimage, obedience, and deep community should characterize Christians as well. Can you imagine how privileged the Israelites would have felt to have God like seriously can you imagine like living in this tent and you wake up in the morning and you just look and the presence of god (laughs) is in the middle like like, what a privilege it would be to have him in in their midst to know that he did all of these things to save them and to bring them near but that even so they could only come so close these instructions show us that there were veils and mechanisms whereby God could simultaneously be with them and yet protect the people from his holiness. Even so, like what a privilege, right? Don't you guys think? But, friend, don't you see that because of the work of the truer and better tabernacle, Jesus Christ, that you are more privileged than even Israel here? The story, like Moitier told a young Tim Keller, is eerily similar because God was unfolding his story and plan and giving a shadow of the gospel, and that story climaxes in the rending of the flesh of Christ so that you can walk right into the presence of God. Jesus ushers you, you have no business being there, but he belongs there, and he ushers you into God's very presence. Because you are so intimately connected to Jesus that wherever he is, there you are also. All of these things in the tabernacle are meant to point you to an even greater truth. There is light from the lampstand, yes, but Jesus is the light of the world. He's a truer and better lampstand. There is table of bread of the presence, yes, but Jesus said that he is the bread of life. He is a truer and better bread. There's the word of God in the ark. Yes, Jesus is the word of God made flesh, not only to embody God's word, but to show us what all of scripture actually means. There's an altar, yes. And Jesus is the lamb who was sacrificed on the altar of the cross to bear the guilt of sinful man. He's a truer, better altar, truer, better lamb, truer, better, once for all, sacrifice. There are high priests, yes, but Jesus is, Hebrews 8, the truer and better high priest. There is a veil that separates man from God, but Jesus tore it asunder. And he opened it up to all who would give allegiance to him. Isn't that incredible? These chapters of Exodus, they're incredible, but they're, they're even more incredible because of who they point to. Israel's privileged indeed, more privileged than anybody in the Bible up to this point, but you, brother and sister, are more privileged Still. Do you realize that? I forget that sometimes. Do you? What a thing to forget. Do you see the enormity of what's being prefigured here and of what Jesus fulfills? Jesus tabernacled among us and he offers to take up residence with you. And he calls the church the temple of God where his spirit dwells among the saints. And he gives you his word to know him even more and behold more and more of his glorious beauty. Draw near and see how privileged you are. And not because you did something or earned something or inherited something. You and me in ourselves are owed nothing by God but his wrath and condemnation. But he looked at us, he saw our plight in bondage and he shed his own blood to purchase us and to lead us to himself. And he offers to dwell among us in a more intimate way than Israel ever dreamed of. How should we respond? By tapping into the means of grace he has given us to get more of him, know more about him, know what his will for our lives is, obey gladly and willingly, and spread his rule to those in darkness. Now there's one more thing I want to share with you, and I'll close with this. I said at the beginning, do you remember, three hours ago when I started the sermon, <laughs> that has impressive I know that's what you're thinking. As impressive and intricate and special and beautiful as the tabernacle is, its glory is derived in what? Who occupies it? Yes? Because at the end of the day, it's a tent. (laughs) What makes it special is that Yahweh himself comes. The God of all things, whose majesty and splendor and power and might cannot be described with a human tongue, let alone be contained in a building made by human hands yet he chooses to dwell in part in this tent among people who if they saw his glory would be incinerated but he makes a way to be with them and to draw them in and the fact that he is with them is why the tabernacle is so special why is the gospel so glorious too many too many reasons to tell right It's too many But it's not only because of the benefits which the redeemed enjoy, which there are a host, and we talk a lot about that, and we should, but the glory of the gospel, the best part of its truths, the greatest aspect of the gospel for you, if you will bow your knee to King Jesus, is that you get Jesus himself. Everything else is gravy. The gospel is great because the gospel means we get Jesus, The Jesus who shares all the same aspects of Yahweh that I named a moment ago. He's just as holy, just as glorious, just as mighty, just as powerful, but he has made a way in an even greater move to get close to you. No veil. No repeated sacrifice. No need for incense to cloud the vision so that we won't die from beholding him. We get him. And we get all of them. And that's why the gospel is so glorious. Michael Reeves, listen to what he said. Jesus is not a mere topic, subject we could pick out from a menu of options. Without him, our gospel or our system, however coherent, grace-filled, or Bible-based, simply is not Christian. It will only be Christian to the extent that it is about him. And then what we make of him will govern what we mean by the word gospel. He says, I'm going to dare say, in fact, that most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through our forgetting or marginalizing Christ. That is, despite all of our apparent Christianness, we fail to build our lives and thoughts upon the rock, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity. It's not an idea, a system, or thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. I want you to consider this. From gentle and lowly, which... There were copies on your seat last week. I hope you grabbed the copy. If you didn't get a copy, grab a free copy from the bookstall when you uh, leave out here. But this is what he said, okay? He said, the New Testament teaches us that... uh, Just think about this, okay? The New Testament teaches us that we are united to Christ, a union so intimate that whatever our own body parts do, Christ's body can be said to do. Listen to this. Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. Do you realize this? Do you see that you get Jesus? <laughs> and he is more precious than all the riches in all the worlds times a billion. And do you dwell on that thought? Do you let it sink into your heart and your very bones? And do you know, friend, why our future hope or our bodies will be raised in likeness of Christ to dwell in the new heavens and new earth? you know why that's so glorious? It's not at its core because of its surpassing beauty, of course it's beautiful, or its streets of gold, or its costly stone, or its perfect measurements, or its crystal clear river, but because our triune God will be in our very midst, to the extent that there's no temple because God's the temple, and there's no sun because God's brightness illumines us all. That's why heaven is good, because we get to be in the presence of our God forever and ever, because, as Revelation 21 says, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes." Friend, will you let these truths grip you today? We ask God to ruin you afresh with the beauty and enormity of the fact that you get Jesus and you get the Father and you get the Holy Spirit and you get them now and forever. You let that sink in, you'll never be the same again. And living for him and dying for him and prioritizing his glory will be the desire of your transformed and invigorated heart.